Hey there, everybody. Hey I'm, there. I'm so glad to be back. Two We're, weeks, it seemed like an eternity. Yeah. Missed you, Patty. I missed you guys. Matt, yeah. Missed you, honey. And I missed everybody. Missed them too, missed, of course. Yes, I did. Sure. I yeah, did. we missed you last Monday. When you're used to having as many Bible studies a week as I do, I'm just being honest. You know, you really miss them. And I missed two weeks of the Mondays and the Tuesdays. Yeah. I managed to make it that I squeezed in a Sunday and a Sunday with, with my yeah. flights, but it it was uh, a challenge. It huh? was a challenge, but I am so glad to be here. And you know what? The first thing I came to mind when I walked outside the door today. What was that? What happened to fall? <laughs> well, I think it's going to come back in a few days. It's I kind know. of it's kind of like this big tease. But wow, right? yeah. yeah. So just kind of a big tease. But we're glad everybody is here today. We are going to begin the book of Esther today. I think it's a kind of a God thing that we are going to make a journey through the book of Esther, and I'll explain that in a minute. But, um, you know, for Patty and me right now, given what's happened to Israel and the people of Israel in the last uh, 48 hours, uh, we're, our hearts are pretty troubled, and our souls are troubled. And, you know, we Patty and I have been there six times. We have met lots of people. We, we just love the people. We love the place. We've been there enough and that it kind of feels like home when we're there. And um, so it's, it's just wrong on so many levels. I can hardly even begin to contemplate them all. But um, we're keeping the people of Israel in our prayers. And if you would do the same, please, because... Please. Uh, how could any of us live life? How could any of us live as they have lived year after year after year with the threat of this always hanging over them, always knowing that at any moment, um, even, if, even if it isn't as bad as it is right now, it, those rockets could always be coming. Always be there. Imagine that there were rockets along the border of the Rio Grande and just any moment, they could come raining down on Texans and Arizonans and Californians and stuff. It would be impossible. We wouldn't put up with it. Yep. Um, and I think Israel's not going to put up with it anymore either. But hey, and, and you know there we go. how that all became so clear to us when we were there in November. This time, um, one of our tour guides, Lior, who we've known now for more than 10 years, um, just a absolutely wonderful human being and so is his family and he kindly invited us to um to dinner at his home up in the golan heights uh another really rough place because he home beautiful everything but right literally on the board with syria so it's this pressure from all sides and we crossed the street with him in his area where he lived and I mean, literally across the street. And there was a building that Scott and I thought was perhaps maybe an unfinished restroom. Because <laughs> well, that's what it looked like. It an looked just like um, an outdoor, <laughs> like in a park where you'd have a restroom, but that it was all concrete. And as we walked by, Lior said, no, that's not, that's not a, a restroom. That's the bomb shelter for when the kids are here with maybe their parents at the, on the swings, on the seesaw. And the, the sirens go off, they all know to run into that bomb 
Because they would only have minutes. They would only have minutes. Top 15 minutes, maybe less. Yeah, maybe less. To get to a place of safety. They're so close to 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 the Hezbollah rockets. Yes. And then we were there. We had this lovely little meal. And when dinner was over, um, Lior said to his son, who was 13, um, I'm going to take Scott and Patty into your room. And I'm going to show them what other purpose your room has. And we went in this young boy's room, and we soon realized that with just a couple of a uh, couple of little switcho changos, the room was now a well fortified bomb shelter, and that was their family home bomb shelter. Um, the way Leor ex- explained it to us, if those if those uh, rockets were coming from the serious side, he would have thirty seconds to get in the bomb shelter. Wow. Which what you I mean, how is that even possible? His children had bomb drills every single week of their lives. These were small children who knew exactly what to do. And what was so sad to us is that these little children had to be taught what to do. Yes. They had to be taught to stay away from the minefields. Yes. Up there in that part of Israel. Here's what the sign is. Here's what the barbed wire means. No, you can't go there. You can't go there. So it is a way of life that... um, that is so foreign to us. I know Susan said that she have, was thinking about raising funds to get them here, but I don't think they would leave. They don't want to leave Israel. They love it so they much. They love it so, and they're committed there, yeah. and this is their land, and, and they're not... Yeah. I, I can't imagine Lior yes. would leave with his family. That's right. And it's passed on from generation to generation. He is His grandfather was part of one of the original kibbutzers, that's there right. in Israel. That's so, right. anyway, uh, Lior and Maddie both served. Both were in um, Israeli intelligence. Um, they're both over forty now, and I doubt either one of them. Maddie told us this time yes. that um, he had just passed the point that he was no longer a reservist. But you know, if you've listened to the news today, they've already called up hundreds of thousands of reservists first i heard a hundred thousand now i've heard the word hundreds and all these people that were going about their normal life that had served many years ago are now right have faced the possibility of a ground war so keep them in your prayers Please do. as you can prayers. tell we we are this very has been concerned for them really 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 concerning and um Anyway, I know and, quite and a I'll few tell you one other thing. You probably, have been there. I've just yeah, looked at the names, and yeah. so many people, so many of you, have that p- part of Israel in in your heart. And 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 I, I will tell you one other thing. You probably you may not know, you may know who Adam Hamilton is. Adam Hamilton is a senior pastor of Church of the, of the Resurrection, which is the largest Methodist church in America, and he and four hundred and fifty people from his church. It's a big, big, big church. Are all on a ship, a cruise ship, in the Eastern Mediterranean, just hanging out because they were uh, they were going on an Israel cruise. Yeah. They were supposed to dock in Israel on Sunday, and obviously that's not happening. Then they were going to go do two days in Alexandria. That's not happening. I, I don't know that the cruise ship should go into Ephesus right now. So oh, I don't think so. Everything think is so happening. up in the air. But we are here yes. right now for the next yes. hour and five minutes yes. to talk about Esther. And I'll yes. explain why I said what I said just a, just a, yes. a minute ago. So 
um, anywhere. I don't know why yes. we've Just seen. Ad- Adam Hamilton's trip is basically the exact same trip that we have planned yeah. for April, which of course. Yeah. But ours will be better. Nothing, oh yes, <laughs> we're we're hoping peace will be uh, peace will be in that land a long time before that, obviously. Yes. But yes. no one knows. Yes. Just no one knows. So. Also, just keep these fellow Methodists. You you can imagine their disappointment, people who have been planning this trip like many of you all have for a year or a year and a half they've been planning this. And to actually get so close and then to have this this horrible thing happen and the disappointment must be overwhelming. Yeah. And also they're fearful, and I'm sure their families back home want them back home. You just know? get home, yeah. Yeah, not in, yeah. Not in the, uh, yeah. the area where they are, so... I think you better pray us. Okay, into this. I'll pray we us. We could keep on talking we about could. Israel forever. Let us pray, gracious Lord. We are grateful for the opportunity to come together like this to study your word, to begin this journey through the story of Esther. And it is, it seems, somehow in your special timing that on this day we are taking up this story of Esther and um, let it be a special journey for us. And meet the book of Esther on its terms, not ours, on its terms. Um, for you have given us this this, this story, and um, we thank you for it. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, my friends, I'm going to, I don't know why Patty and I were having trouble getting both in the picture there, but that's okay. As long as I it think the me camera, <laughs> I think the camera was maybe a little bit too, too close to us i'm not sure you're see honey you're away for a week everything falls apart you know what the miracle um, is all kinds of recordings weren't starting that i actually remembered to put everything on silent <laughs> that's right and i saw a note from linda waldo saying well it's a, isn't a great thing that they didn't get to israel sooner yes. yeah it is i'd much rather yes. be circling in the mediterranean and making surprise visits to yes, cyprus linda. and santorini than oh, i would goodness be trying to get around Israel right now just with a large group so okay so let me explain why I said what I said about Esther the book of Esther this story set in the community of the Jews in ancient Persia nearly 900 not 900 nearly 500 years before Jesus is a story of persecution. It's the story of an attempt to exterminate the Jews in Persia. That's what it is. And it's a it, it's an unusual book. It doesn't it's it's there's almost nothing quote religious about it. Um, the the word God never appears. God doesn't appear. Um, certainly for faithful readers of Esther, you can see God moving behind the scenes, but God is only behind the scenes, never, never up front. But it's a story of persecution, and it is um, not, how can I put this? It's likely not a true story. Almost no scholars think it's a story to where you get in a time machine and go back and find Esther in these circumstances for a whole lot of reasons that don't that don't concern us. But it's a story that was cherished by the Jews enough so that there are three different versions of this story. 
um, some longer, some shorter, which come which have come down over time. And the most attested version is the one that we have in our Bible. But if in the book of the in the books of the Apocrypha, which are some additional Jewish writings that um, were important to the Jews and have been important to Christians, there are additions in the books of the Apocrypha to the book of Esther that we're going to read here. So it's, it's, it's a story which rings so true in the Jewish heart because they have been persecuted for millennia. Even when they were an independent kingdom in, in, the land, you know, in the land of Israel, they were being pushed on by the Egyptians or the Assyrians. Somebody was pushing on them all the time. And um, this Assyrian Empire overran the northern kingdoms in 722. And in 586, the Babylonian Empire overran Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and sent thousands of Jews into exile in Babylon. And then when the Persian Empire arose and took over the Babylonian Empire, some of the Jews who were left came, but some did not. And the community of those who did not choose to return to Israel is the community among whom this story is set. Okay? So I brought a few slides, and if you have things you would like me to talk about here, just, just, jot, them, jot, just jot them down there. You know, there's an entire Jewish festival called Purim that is um, set around this, and it's a very, it's something the kids get involved in. There's a lot of melodrama because it's one of those stories where the good guys are really, really good and the bad guy is really, really bad. And I, I think it is played out in that way in an almost comic, farcical way because in millennia of persecution, what do you do? You, you can't cry all the time, right? That's just how... So, in this case, this story is written in such a way that it generates a lot of, a lot of laughter as you're, as you're seeing it played out. And, um, as it, and I'm not going to give away the ending so that everybody sticks around. I guess everybody, I guess you stick around for more than the ending. Huh? But anyway, that, that's what Esther is. So, let me just set the stage a little bit more. Okay, so I've told you it's set in Persian. I'm going to get to maps in a moment. I just wrote a few things down on the slide here that you can look at. It's set in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Iran is Persia. Iraq is Babylonia, if you want to think about it that way. Set in Persia after the time of the Babylonian exile, about in the 5th century B.C. And in that time... Persia being sort of the inheritor inheritor of the Babylonian Empire expanded it and it would rule that whole part of the world until the time of Alexander the Great. Until Alexander the Great in about 330 BC. It is a story of the Jewish community. The focus is on persecution and rescue. Um, probably written between 200 and 400 BC. 
there's enough clues of language and so forth in there that scholars are pretty confident that somewhere in that time frame it's written. Many doubts about the historicity. That means, is this an actual, I have a time machine, let me go find them kind of story, the historicity of the story. But I don't care, you shouldn't care, it doesn't matter. It, it matters many, many times, such as the resurrection of Jesus, but this is not that kind of thing. God gave us the book of Esther for a reason. It's this story. Um, a melodramatic, well-told story of persecution and rescue. And the Jews did embrace it as sacred scripture, even though it's not, there's no religious elements in it. There's no priests in it. God is never mentioned in it. There's no big, long prayers going up in it. Um, but it's a story that lies at the heart of being a Jew and being persecuted simply for that reason alone. So every year, the story of Esther is acted out in, in synagogues around the world in this really carnivalesque holiday of Purim with the kids and the songs and the melodrama and a lot of laughter and a lot of, you know, I, I think of it a bit like, you know, dastardly Dan who's tying a little blonde Polly down to the rail tracks and so forth and gets up and twirls his mustache at the end and You'll see. You'll see what I mean. That's Dick Dastardly. Dick Dastardly? Yes. What did I call him? Dan Dastardly? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so, um, anyway. So, this is a map basically showing you the Persian Empire. Portion of it. This is just a portion of it because it stretches all the way to from Greece, basically, eastward all the way to India. And, you know, the pink is pink only because nobody cared about it. There was just sand. That's Saudi Arabia today. Nobody would care about Saudi Arabia today if they didn't have oil. So the pink is, I mean, the yellow is just showing the vast extent of the Persian Empire, and I've circled Susa, which is the capital, actually one of several capitals that they had because the, their empire was so extensive. But Susa is where this story is set, right down there in um, where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers come together. Now, and I did bring one other map just for grins. This, what this map is gonna do is overlay modern day countries on this map. I always find that kind of interesting. I do too. Here we go. So, um, you can see if you look where Susa was, back a slide. Okay, back a slide, Scott. Back a slide. Oh, come on. There's Susa with the circle. Now forward a slide, there's Susa, right there at the top of the gulf there. Um, but if you, I put a red arrow up to the up, oh, to the right and up a bit, showing you where Tehran is. So that's Iran. Iran are are the the Iranians are the descendants of the Persians, and their language is Farsi. They don't speak Arabic there. Um, to the left of Iran, you find Babylon, Mesopotamia, 
Iraq. They are the descendants of the Babylonians. And then you get up to other modern day countries like Syria and Turkey and Jordan, which is a creation after the end of the First World War. And then you get over to the Israel and the Mediterranean. Okay? Just for grins. I just brought that all for grins because, you know, I haven't used maps in here in a while. Didn't have much occasion to do it. So, let me just pause here and see if there's anything y'all would like to talk about before we get going. I'm going to get a swallow of my water here. Uh, no questions yet, Scott. How about you, Patty? You got anything to ask about everything I just said? You could say no. I don't have any, but okay. I love that first picture you had up of Esther. It looked like a. I know. A I found pageant. a picture of her that where she was kind of a little, a little haughty, right? It really did look like the back of a Miss America contestant. Yeah, kind of. But you're going to see why I picked that, that that particular slide, why the maker of the slide did that. There's a reason. Okay. Okay, so... See, she's even got the little Miss America crown on. She does. And that will become plain and clear. All right, so let's go. Now, chapter 1, verse 1. The first two verses are just setting sort of the stage the things we've been talking about. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Now you might have a translation, if you're not using the NIV, it might, it, might, it might say Ahasuerus. But really Xerxes, Xerxes works. Okay, and Xerxes is an historical character. There was a king of Persia, the fourth Persian king um, in the early part of the 5th century BC who ruled over ruled over Persia and the translators of the NIV I think are perfectly fine identifying the king as Xerxes the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush that's Egypt at that time King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa which I showed you on the map. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, that's an ancient kingdom that has now been subsumed up into the Persian Empire. The princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. These are all of the top dogs. All of the VIPs, the limousines would have been rolling for hours, unloading everybody into this big banquet. Verse 4. For a full 180 days. Wow. And so how you, you see how you're immediately thrust into this kind of comic, I mean, a 180-day banquet? Maybe not, but it's showing you the, the sheer vastness of this banquet and the hospitality and the size of the party and all this stuff, okay? For a full 180 days, that's half a year, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, <laughs> the king was not done. 
the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. So these would be the super-duper VIPs. And as well as just some common folk. For all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. So he's had the big half-year party for all of the VIPs. Now he's got this odd, it's kind of an odd party, really. I mean, it's an odd party because it's it's a party where the richest of the rich are hanging out with the, the common folk, the poor, the least. I mean, who really does throw parties like that? Even in our world today, I can't think of too many. Now, verse 6. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. Oh, it's so beautiful and so fancy and so lovely. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. So the wine is flowing. It's a seven-day party at the end of a 180-day party. I mean, how did the empire ever get run, really? You kind of wonder, don't you? By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. They could drink as much as they wanted. <laughs> they could get completely soused. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Wow. Now, maybe the super-duper greatest, you know, the rich folks are used to that kind of treatment, but not the common folks. So here they are in this magnificent place. The wine goblet is probably worth more than they can make in their lifetime. And the wine is flowing and there's no restrictions and people are drinking, drinking, drinking. Which leads to the same kind of problems then that it does now. Okay, right? Sure. Sure. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs. I guess everybody knows what a eunuch is. That is a man who has been castrated so that he can hold a position of trust, particularly in the harem. Xerxes would have a harem. He would have a first wife. He would have second wives. He would have concubines. Um, eunuchs would serve in the harem, and they would have been castrated first so that they could be um, trusted, if you catch what I mean. Eunuchs... Um, men were also castrated who wanted to serve in the treasury. The idea being, being that as a eunuch, they could be trusted with the king's money because they, king's money, because they couldn't be seduced. Wow. Right? I would think a lot fewer guys wanted to serve in government back then, but hey. Probably not a lifelong position anyway, like some of our guys. Yeah. <laughs> He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bithsa, 
Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zesar, and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti. She's number one. She is Queen Vashti. Wife number one, numero uno, one, one, top of, top of it all, wearing her royal crown. And why does, why does he send for us in his drunken stupor, right? He's in high spirits from wine. He is, whew, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. She refused to be paraded around like a piece of meat, shown off as just part of the king's treasury. He's shown off his money, his wealth, his gold, his silver, and I'll let you see what I got over here. Isn't she beautiful? And so she says no. Well, that's kind of remarkable, I think, that Vashti says, no, I'm not going to do it. And the king was furious, and he burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. And these wise men are Garshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meraz, Marsena, and Marmukin. The seven nobles of Persia and Medea who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. So they're like his, his cabinet, his advisors, his trusted advisors. So he's going to get them all together in order to talk about, well, what am I going to do about Vashti, right? I mean, what's, what's, what's the king's problem? She's not obeying him. She's not obeying him. <laughs> This is not 2023, in which a wife can just tell her husband, oh, stuff it, you're nuts, you drunken sot. No, this is a world where the wife does what the husband says, the queen does what the king says. Everybody does what the queen says, what the king says. Nobody says no to the king. Nobody says no to the king. So, verse 15, he asks them this question. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Hmm, what's to be done? And he assembles this cabinet of just old guys. So what do you think they're going to say? Well, then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will be known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands. Uh-oh! They all might start telling us no. We got wives. We got women. 
They're supposed to obey us. What if this word gets out that she doesn't obey you, King? We're in trouble. What about the average husband out there? We got from we got people here at the party from the lowest to the greatest. What if they all see the queen gets away with saying no to you, her husband, and her king? That the women will start actually feeling a sense of freedom. Yes. They can't have that. So, oh, they will despise their husbands, and they'll say, quote, Well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti be brought before him, but she wouldn't come, so I'm sure not doing what you want. Well, that's, that, that can't stand. So, his advisor goes on. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. This can't be allowed to stand. I like to picture this guy as being about, you know, 85 and kind of bent over and wizened and he's got this like walking cane in his hand. But now as he's getting, oh, this can't stand. These women, they'll get out of control. They'll get out of control. You know, in the history of the Roman Empire, there were women who burst out for a while. At the time of Hannibal, there were rich women um, who had attained their wealth, generally via inheritance, and were funding the Roman wars against Hannibal, the Punic Wars. And they began they began to say no. And one of them made an impassioned speech on the floor of the Senate, basically saying no. And what do you think happened? What do you think the response was? Well. The women were cracked down on. <laughs> in the time of the Jesus in the time of Jesus, um, and Paul, in the Roman Empire, women were beginning to spread their wings a bit again. If they wanted to let their hair down, they were going to do it. They were going to do it. No matter what anybody said, even if their husband said no, they were going to let their hair down. And oh. Of course, yeah. if they were treating their women right, they wouldn't have this problem. I guess. <laughs> so the old guy... The bent-over, wizened old guy with his cane waving in the air. He says, Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. We're going to lock her away in that harem forever. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who's better than she. Dot, 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 at obeying. Right? Mm -hmm. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed through all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. You see, that's, that's why they're elite from the least to the greatest at the party. So, that's the idea. We will show 
we will show Vasti. She's going to get stripped of her title. She's not going to be able to ever see the king again. She's going to be locked away in this harem for the rest of her life. And so now when the kingdom learns about this disobedience and the wives see what happened to Vashti, they will all simply bow their heads and say, yes, yes, husband. Yes, yes. Is that about right, Patty? That's what I'm getting. Am I over-exaggerating this no. thing? No, I don't no. think I am. Oh, man. You know, um, this story is written for a exaggeration and, you know, six-month parties and all that kind of stuff. But still, always remember, uh, no woman I know would want to live to be time-transported back to the ancient world. The closest you could get, I guess, on the globe today would be to go live in Afghanistan under the Taliban. That's, that, would, that, would get you, that would get you back to about 700 AD or so. But, <clears throat> okay. Well, verse 21. Not surprisingly, the, pre, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as... Mamukin proposed. Do you see what Susan's comment is? No, there's nothing as to why she would refuse. I mean, you can infer that she doesn't want to, to um, be paraded as meat, but in truth, the role Vashti plays in this is merely a vehicle to get to Esther as you'll see. So the Vashti story is simply a way to then get to Esther and what happens. So, you you know, if, if that's only, because Vashti's not a very fleshed out character or anything, right? She never, um, we're told that she speaks in, re, in refusing, but she's got no actual dialogue or anything. So she's just a vehicle to get to this central pop figure in the story, which is which is Esther, and so that's all that's all it is. But you know, maybe she's just tired of being paraded around like a piece of meat in front of these men who have been partying all this time. Yeah, I mean it would be yeah yeah degrading, like very degrading. I mean it's not hard to to you know to infer why she would say no, but we're not really told. What matters is that she says no, and the consequence of her saying no is this crackdown on her and uh, women in general, and that is going to lead us to Esther. Now, Becky happens to mention that when we were back in verse 9, she was having an, her own banquet. It said that she was having a banquet. I missed that the, verse, didn't I? Yes, Queen Vashti also had a banquet for the women in the royal palace. I skipped that verse. Thank you so much, Becky. I don't know how I did that. I must have pushed the iPad up too fast. So, yeah, so she was giving a banquet. Now, would the king care whether she was giving a banquet for the women? No. Maybe in their world, queen, women, could, 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 they could not say no. When the king says X, Y, Z, they just 
they have to say yes. Um, you couldn't even just walk in and she couldn't even just walk in and talk to the king unless she was like given an audience before the king. And women didn't have much of a voice in this world. So, but I see that now, Becky. Thank you. I don't know. I guess I just, I'm not always the best on this iPad. But I'm trying to get better. I'll, I'll use that angle for it. Maybe I won't push it quite so far. I may okay. get you one of the stands I have. That well, would I would have the same problem because this is how much I, I, I move the page up, right? Yeah, right. Right, so I could do, I could screw this up anywhere. All different ways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Okay, so, verse 21. So the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukin proposed, the old, and he sent dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom, to every province in its own script its own language and to people in their own language proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household yes using his native tongue yes the men are in charge they're rulers over their own household by golly it's a man's world and the king's going to keep it that way how's that yeah Kind of sounds like the honeymooners. I can imagine <laughs> Ralph going. <laughs> yeah, but she, yeah, but Alice doesn't take it Alice though, does she? She's she more does. like Vashti. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't take it. But he thinks he's the king. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now we're going to go on to chapter two. Chapter one is merely the setup in order to get to chapter two. Okay. So. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And guess what? I'll bet you he feels badly. He had had too much to drink because he was, you know, very spirited with his wine. He had had too much to drink. He was angry. He acted hastily. And he, and he now regrets it. What comes to mind is there, like in in the Greco-Roman world of Paul and and Jesus, women had no public life. They led only private lives. They really didn't have the freedom, anything approaching the freedom that women have now. They, they lived in their homes and they did as their husbands instructed. Their husbands were free to have sex with whomever they wished so long as it wasn't another man's wife. Um, daughters were seen largely as a potential problem because a daughter could get pregnant and bring great shame on the family. And so there's a lot of ways, sort of at a societal level, that, that women were seen in this deeply negative sense. But of course, the fathers and the daughters and the wives and the sons were people. They too were made in the image of God. And so when you see fathers writing things in letters or on tombstones about a wife or a daughter, it's much like we would write it now. 
So, so the fact that society had this, had its deep restrictions on the role of women didn't mean that men didn't love their wives or love their daughters um, much as much as we do now. You know, they didn't marry for romance back then. That was a luxury that didn't really arrive until really like the 19th century is when the notions of romantic love and marriage and all that stuff came to the fore. Because before that, people didn't have the luxury of marrying for romance. They, they, they married for good practical reasons of family or property, dynasty, work, that sort of thing. But still, they're people. So here's the king. He's been drunk. He did, he got mad and he lashed out and he listened to that crazy old man and issued this big decree that, remember when it said that he can't, the king can't repeal this decree? Now that's an odd thing because really the kings were complete autocrats, but it serves the story. So the king can't repeal, he can't repeal this decree. So if he feels terrible about what he did to Vashti and he can't undo it, what is to be done? What is to be done? And his, his attendants are going to come up with a plan, not to help Vashti, but to help the king. Verse 2, so the king's personal attendants propose this to the king. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm. How many provinces are there, we're told at the beginning of the book? 127. In every one of the 127 provinces of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. So the provincial officials are supposed to go out and basically have beauty contests in each province. Miss so-and-so and Miss this-and-so and bring these girls who are expected to be virgins, 127 of them, I guess, yeah. to Susa, well, they will make new lives in the king's harem, thinking that all of these beautiful women being at his disposal will get him to feel him better. Uh-huh. Yep. Let them be placed under the care of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. I know, they're kind of the province girls. They're provincial girls. You know, they're going to come in. They, they want to treated their skin well. They won't know the right products to use. So bring him in, have all 127, we'll give him lots of beauty treatments and, and, and take them like, what will, how would they, people, we will, we will, we, we will make them next level. Yes. <laughs> next, next level, next level beauties, next level virgins for the, for the king. 
And the final piece of this is, after they bring in all of these candidates, that's what they are, they're candidates, and beautify them, then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. So this is a replacement hunt. This is a recruiting to replace Vashti because as we saw in chapter one, the king can't repeal the decree. This is like the bachelor, only the bachelor is the <laughs> king and he gets all these beautiful women to come in and try to make right him yeah. choose them, that they want to be the one who gets the rose. This is like, because <laughs> you're telling me ABC is behind all of this. It could be. You know, I've never watched one single episode, but I see the commercials. <laughs> Isn't this like, um, sort of like a thousand and one Arabian Nights? This is really going back. I haven't thought about that in decades. But in a thousand and one Arabian Nights, those are stories supposedly told by a young woman who gets her one night with the king, oh, after which she is supposed to be like, because she's like been used up. Or whatever, but she stays with the king. The king wants her every night, every night to keep coming back because she tells him these stories that become a thousand and one Arabian nights. I think that's true. Okay. So Susan's saying what? Now, I love the book of Esther and feel a little deflated about it just being a story. Well, Susan, you can believe what I'm just you. That's whatever you want to do with it. Fine. Um. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to be deflated. You don't have to be deflated about it. But there are just a lot of elements of the story that if you, if you're sort of freed from the burden of thinking, well, how could this really be? That kind of frees you, right? To to concentrate on what the on why the story would be cherished by the Jews. Why is it going to be cherished by the Jews? Because it is a story about persecution, and rescue. And it's told in a melodramatic way because that makes it more what interesting and, and full but you know i may get to see jesus when i get to see jesus he someday say scott all those guys were all wrong yeah here come let me introduce 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 you to esther i don't know i just pass along what i pick up when i try to prepare for these classes but it is a great story, and it's endured all these thousands of years and is still acted out at Purim every year in synagogues across America and in Israel. And it's a festival that includes the children. And go, um, you can put Purim uh, into Google, and it will have things that you can make and things you can buy for the Purim festival and so forth, all coming out of the Book of Esther. So, Patty Cook just said she could see this being made into an opera. Yeah, see, operas yes. operas are kind of that way, exactly. But I mean, operas are very melodramatic because you have big music and you have a big story to go with it, and you know, sure, in an opera you could have a six month banquet, for sure. Whereas in real life, that might be hard to pull off. But anyway. <laughs> So the attendants come up with this idea. Well, we're just going to replace Vashti. That's the solution. The, the, the decree can't be undone, but by golly, we'll, and we'll get 127 young virgins, the prettiest, most beautiful young virgins from around the empire, and we will spiff them up and 
He'll pick one as queen and wow, wow, he'll be happy again instead of moping around the palace all day. Well, so they go in and they tell the king, King, we're going to round up 127 of the most beautiful virgins in the empire and bring them back to your harem and make them extra beautiful for you. The rest of verse 4 is like this. This advice appealed to the king. <laughs> I always like that line. Yeah, and he followed it. Sure, sure, king. He says, oh, oh, that's, the, that's your plan, huh? Well, okay, I'll go along. <laughs> now, you got to start paying attention to names now. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jeho Jehoiakim. So that's relating the, a little bit of the family line, you know, father, grandfather. We, we get father and grandfather of Mordecai. And grandfather was part of the exile group, and now he's had a son and a grandson, um, and they've been living in, in Babylon, which then became, was taken over by, you know, subsumed up into the Persian Empire. And the, his, the, the reference to Jehoiakim is a good one because he was, Jehoiakim was the last um, king of, of, of Israel. He's the king of Israel at the time of the Babylonian exile. Verse 7. Now Mordecai, Mordecai is a name to follow him, or Mordecai is a key character in this story. Now Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Okay? There's a Jewish women's group named Hadassah, is there not? I don't know what they do, but I've, I've heard of Hadassah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. So she was an orphan, Hadassah was. And Mordecai um, looked under kindly. He's really responsible for her because she is his cousin and she's an orphan. But father and mother are dead. So Mordecai takes her into his household. Now, this young woman, who was also known as what? Esther. Because, see, they would have a Hebrew name and a Persian name. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter, when her father and mother died. Wow, so there's a lot of poignancy there, right? I mean, all right, so we, have, we meet Mordecai, whose family, of course, left, was taken from Jerusalem in the time of the exile and marched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to um, Babylonia and is now part of the Persian Empire and 
he has taken this orphaned cousin of his, this little girl, into his household and raised her as his daughter. Raised her as his daughter. And her name is Hadassah, <clears throat> much better known as Esther, her Persian name. Okay? And she's beautiful. Lovely figure. Beautiful. But Jewish. But Jewish. Whereas Xerxes, all the nobles, are they Jewish? No. In the Jewish vernacular, they're all Gentiles. Verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegei. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegei, who had charge of the harem. So in her province, Esther is the one who's picked. I don't know what province she lived in, but she is Miss whatever that province is in this way of thinking about it. So she is brought then to the citadel, then to Susa, and she's going to get the beauty treatment, and she's going to be one of the candidates to replace Vashti. Now, in verse 9, she pleased him, that's the eunuch, Hegei. She pleased him, and she won his favor. He really liked her. He liked her. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. You know, in the ancient world, a lot of people lived on subsistence diets. They were lived in various states of malnutrition. So now she's going to get the beauty treatments. She'll be able to use the serious skin care. Um, she'll be able to eat the right special food to get her just as beautiful as... As, as God could ever have envisioned her, right? He assigned to her seven female attendants. That's how much he likes her. Seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. I, so this is where I, I, you know, I get to the story and I'm thinking about what am I supposed to understand about Esther? Well, obviously Mordecai loved her with all of her heart. She must have been a very enjoyable person, right? Hegei must have enjoyed her a lot and favored her a lot because he is setting everything up for her to be the winner of this contest, the food, the special beauty treatments right off the bat, going to give her the best the best apartment in the harem, going to give her seven special attendants to work on her and just get her get her to her very best. So, I'm I've always thought that, you know, she's charming. Delightful. Right? Yes. I picture her with dark dark hair and dark eyes. Now, Esther, verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background. She told nobody that she was a Jew. 
It isn't hard to figure out why, is it? The Jews have been taken into exile. She's part of that community of exiles, aliens, as it were. Um, and there might be several generations into this community, but yeah, she would still have with her the stain of exile, and plus she's a Jew, and the Jews had been a problem to all kinds of people over, over the years. Right up till today. Right up till today. And so she didn't reveal her nationality or her family background because Mordecai had enough sense to forbid her to do it. Mordecai told her, just don't, you don't have to, just don't tell him. Just don't tell him who you, you know, that, that, that you're Jewish or that you're, you come from this line of exiles. Just keep that all to yourself. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So picture, you have the palace, right? And the palace is filled with courtyards and some of the walls of the palace have to have to um, be accessible, right, to the outside world. So he is he's like walking under this window that Esther can reach from the inside and so he talks to her and he walks back and forth and he finds out well how are you doing and what's happening and and so forth that that that's what it is yep Mordecai um, feels responsible for her but she is now she's now within yards of the king of the Persian Empire. Who could have imagined that an orphaned Jewish girl would be within a few feet, a few yards of the king of the Persian Empire. Wow. Verse 12. More about the contest. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfume and cosmetics. 12 months? You would think the king would get pretty darn tired of waiting, wouldn't you? Because the first one couldn't get there for 12 months. Yes. All of this is, right? Wow. Yes. See, that's where it's better not to have, you don't, you're kind of relieved of had asked, well, how could this really be? And this is how she would go to the king. This is the candidate. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening, the candidate, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, Shashgaz the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Okay, so the candidates get one shot at this. One shot. So, so they they're gonna they're, their date's gonna come, and they're gonna go into the king, and they will try to please him enough to. Be at, to be asked back. 
and if they're not if they're not asked back that's it they will spend the rest of their lives in the seclusion of the harem there's none not going to be anything like well you gave it a good try go home She's just going to go back and wait to be summoned again. And she might never be summoned again. Well, okay. Here we go. When the, time, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abihel to go to the king. He asked for, she asked for nothing other than what Higiai, the king's unit, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. So now Higiai is actually preparing her. Right? So he's saying, well, go, this is what you do. Boom, 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 boom. I've watched this happen. You need to do these four things. Ask for these four things, whatever. Talk about these four things, whatever it is. So now she's getting coaching from this guy. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the months of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won. She's the winner of the contest. She won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So Xerxes set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, the now long-forgotten Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet. For all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality, just royal generosity. So now imagine, first of all, imagine that you are Mordecai, the grandson of a captive brought in exile to these lands. And now this orphan this orphaned girl that you, that he took into his house, in his heart, is now been crowned queen of the vast Persian Empire. The whole world, as far as any of these people are concerned, as far as any of them, them are concerned, there is no other world but the Persian Empire. And she's Jewish. Nobody knows it. She hadn't told anybody. Mordecai hadn't told anybody. But she's Jewish. She's part of that exiled community. So what will happen? What will happen now that she is the king's queen? This beautiful young woman who everybody enjoys, everybody's attracted to, everybody likes. but is a Jew, but is a Jew. And when we return next Monday, 
we'll begin to see how this story really unfolds. Because to this point, it's all the build-up. All we did today was the build-up to having Esther be the queen and to see what happens then. So. Such a good story. It is, isn't it? Yes. 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 So you can imagine. Like, you know, like a, a story from first or second Samuel or something. I mean, it's right. juicy. It's got all kinds of so stuff. So you can imagine at, a, at the Jewish festival of Purim when this is acted out in a play. Oh my, don't you, if you're a little girl, don't, Oh. And the kids are acting it out in the different parts. Don't you want to be? You want to well, be you Esther. Want to be Esther. Mm -hmm. Oh, darn right you want yeah. to be Esther. Yeah, not one of the runner-ups. Not Vashti. You have a very short part. <laughs> you wouldn't be there for long. Anyway, I'll have to go to YouTube sometime and see if anybody's recorded a Purim play done by children or youth. Because that's kind of, I'm told that's what happens with this, with this story. That it would be. So, anyway, very good. So we'll we'll pick up there in Chapter 2 when we come back next week. I'm glad to have you home, honey. Thanks. I was glad to be here. It was great. Great, yeah. great to be back. Yeah. And I'm so glad you waited for me to come back to start Esther. Not that that's what really happened. I can't, I would not, I can't say that that's way. what really happened. Know, it just kind of worked, it worked out, out, that, out way, that way. Right? So, we finished yeah. Mark last week and began Esther today. So, but it is... I'm just telling you, it's kind of God's timing, God's thing to, for us to be in Esther right now, given what's happening in, in Israel. Yeah. That's kind of a foreshadow of what's coming. So, my love, can you pray us out of here? I sure can. So glad that everybody was here today that was here. and um, Just awesome, 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 beautiful day. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you, God. For this new book that we're studying, a brand new book for many of us to actually spend more than just a few minutes in. I thank you, God, for Scott's teaching and helping to point out all the little tiny details that many of us, I know I would, would kind of miss in just reading it by myself. I pray, Lord, that you would watch over this group as we gather together each week, Lord. We pray that you would hold us all close to you, Lord that we would feel your presence every day. And Lord, we just pray for uh, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and we pray, God, for peace. Lord, somehow, peace in this, in this war that's going on right now. We pray, God, that you would help make us little ambassadors of peace and make us instruments of your peace. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. Bye, everybody. See you next week. See you Tuesday, people, tomorrow. <coughs> yeah, that's right. Onward in Second Samuel. Yes. Okay. I have homework to do tonight. Forget